as a deadly virus raged across Mississippi. Panicked citizens found themselves facing not only the mysterious disease, but a shortage of food and other necessities due to hoarding and the shutdown of normal commerce. With no vaccine or other cure available, Mississippians sheltered in place and whole communities were quarantined, some with armed men guarding the roads into town. Welcome to Speaking of Mississippi, where we'll explore the landmark moments and overlooked stories of our state's history. I'm Chris Goodwin with the Mississippi Department of Archives and History, and this podcast is made possible by the John and Lucy Shackelford Charitable Fund of the Community Foundation for Mississippi. In this episode, we talk with Deanne Stevens, the author of Plague Among the Magnolias, the 1878 yellow fever epidemic in Mississippi. Stevens is a professor of history at the University of Southern Mississippi and a faculty member with their Center for the Study of the Gulf South. Yellow fever had plagued the southern states of the United States off and on for decades, but almost nothing was understood about its cause, cure, or prevention. What were the symptoms of yellow jack, as it was commonly called, and how was it transmitted? Well, Chris, the symptoms were pretty horrific. Um, The first thing to address is transmission, though. So 1878 Mississippians operated really in a state of ignorance, and I mean that they had no idea how yellow fever was transmitted. No concept who would get it, how you would get it, and what would be the ramifications if you caught it. They only knew that almost annually, yellow fever visited the state and really the Southland. I do want to back up for a minute, though. Yellow fever started with its history in the United States in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. There was a very big epidemic there in 1793. There was a doctor who recorded it and talked about it. But because yellow fever has now become synonymous with the South, it depended upon that mosquito. So that goes into the second part of the question. It has to be transmitted by a mosquito. And for it to have continued anywhere but the South, the weather had to be good. There had to be a certain place where mosquitoes can breed and lay their eggs. And of course, there had to be people. So yellow fever never got a foothold strongly in the North, but in the South, it wreaked just devastation. The 80s Egypti mosquito that was endemic to the South, when viremic individuals or sailors or captains or enslaved people first came into the United States carrying the virus, unbeknownst, of course, to them, the 80s Egypti mosquito that lived here uh, was able to take a blood meal from them and adapt to that particular source of food. So the mosquito is adapting. The people who are coming in, of course, are having to adapt to a new environment, but they're adapting the disease simultaneously together. Once you were bitten by a mosquito who carried the virus, 
It was really as if in today's world, we would say we had the flu. There was an initial fever. There could be some chills. Um, there could be some upset stomach. Uh, your back ached. Um, I've, I've researched where people complained about the long bones, your legs, just, you know, and terrific headaches. Well, that could go on for a couple, two or three days, and then the symptoms subsided. In many people, when the symptoms subsided, you were done. In other people, it was just a lull, and it was a false idea that you were finished. And while you were having those mild symptoms, people would not have been aware and I mean, and imagine that you're not aware that you've got this horrific virus in you. If you reacted in a much more um, devastating way to yellow fever virus, after a period of a couple of days when you thought you were getting better, you would start spiking a very high fever again, terrific headache, constipation, diarrhea. You had horrible bruising on your skin in many instances because yellow fever attacks the white blood cells and actually winds up... Uh, it's like bursting them as they get in there and the virus replicates. So you could have terrible bruising. I have read accounts in 19th century medical journals where people bled from every orifice. It's just that your blood is being compromised and your vessels are being burst. Um, one of yellow fever's most terrible nicknames, a black vom or black plague, uh, it was even called that sometimes, um, results from the, you know, um, hemorrhaging that occurs within your stomach. And um, of course, you're going to vomit up your own semi-digested blood that resembled coffee grounds. And uh, physicians always knew that was the harbinger of death. That was the last stage. In today's world, physicians know, and you can only imagine, the infection rate, the renal failure, the heart failure that goes with this, and of course, yellow fever and, and jaundice because it has attacked the liver. So all of your internal organs were attacked, and it was just a horrible, painful death that people experienced, which caused this, this just absolutely adverse panic reaction when people heard that yellow fever was in their locale. The epidemic of 1878 was awful. Um, in 1878, Mississippi was a far different place. It had come through the Civil War and Reconstruction and was undergoing what was known as redemption when white Mississippians overthrew the legal government. How did the political landscape and the structure of the state and local governments affect the response that they could make to yellow fever? I assert that because of what was occurring and what had occurred in Mississippi, the state was ineffective. The Civil War and its just physical destruction, and then, of course, the political rise of the Republican Party in the state and the animosity there, the newly freed people, the animosity and racial riots that occurred there, uh, registering to vote, the... Um, the white populace just absolute 
adamacy that these things were not going to occur uh, had created such a racial division within the state of Mississippi that there, there, there was no coming together at that point. Politically, um, the State Board of Health was not created until 1877, and that was only, Chris, after the Mississippi plan to seize control of Mississippi's politics and the state and put it back into the Democratic Party and the rise of the patriarchal system yet again. And of course, with that went sharecropping, slavery in a different way. So you had these things in 1875, 76, the elections of 76 and then 77, very significant in the fact that it was absolutely not capable of, nor in some instances, wanting to help fellow Mississippians. So the state was in dire financial need turbulent political need, racial strife, and it was just not prepared for an epidemic of this proportion. Well, speaking of not prepared for epidemics, um, <clears throat> I, I loved the book. And one of the things that I learned from it was just how different the medical community was in 1878 as well. In the United States, there were three medicinal philosophies I learned allopathic, homeopathic, and physiomedical. I'm curious about what the approach of each toward the treatment of Yellow Jack was. And, and also, could you talk a little bit about the three theories of transmission that were commonly held, miasmic, miasmic, fomite, and social causation? Sure. So in the 18th... Delightfully esoteric. Yeah. <laughs> in the 1870s, medical knowledge was rudimentary at best. Strides were being made. Um, we're 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 not yet associating germs. We don't know about that. Um, uh, you know, Louis Pasteur will soon do work with rabies. We're we're absolutely on the cusp. We're we're looking at it, but we're not quite there yet. So when the 1878 epidemic opened up, there were still doctors who believed in what um, was an aggressive treatment with very difficult uh, chemical compounds, arsenic being a basis of many of them, um, that really did more harm than good. There actually were cases in 1878 that I have read about in doctor's journals and medical journals where they were still thinking bleeding was appropriate. Um, enemas, uh, plastering the back with mustard plasters to raise blisters that will help. Um, it was just some of the treatment was um, putting enough blankets on a person, closing all the windows, and having the person literally go through some kind of super sauna that that was going to. So the treatments were with allopathic or traditional, more traditional medicines were more harmful than good. Homeopathy had come about um, a movement from Europe. It had ricocheted back to the United States, and it really was in reaction to those heroic methods that there was a kinder, gentler way. And we hear about homeopathic medicines today. You know, it's, it's um, less is more. 
and you you only gave a little bit rather than a whole lot. And they also were very um, popular with various teas and things that would clear broth was one of the things that you would eat. You know, it's just very gentle treatment. And again, where you lived in Mississippi at the time depended upon what your doctor and all doctors didn't have the same knowledge. The the Thompsonians or the botanists or the botanics, as they were sometimes called, were even more um, benign when they first started and that they absolutely believed in the remedies was in the flora of the land that you could find uh Medicinal. I mean, if we think about Native Americans gathering medicinal lamb's ear and sassafras and things, it was very much along those lines. So three different ways. There was a multitude of other ways to treat it, but those were the three main ones that I've looked at. So there's a terrifying and mysterious disease that begins to sweep across the state. Where? What? What's the path from the coast for the disease? The first cases to begin to appear were Coastal and Vicksburg. The Porter landed in Vicksburg, and along the coast, it wasn't the John Porter who introduced yellow fever. It was New Orleanians themselves and other smaller ships of trade. Um, the coastal area had been a playground for New Orleanians. Many beautiful homes there uh, had been built, and they would spend the summer months out of the, um, the as they called it, the insalubrious climate of New Orleans, and they would go to the salubrious climate with the Gulf breezes um, of the Gulf Coast. And oftentimes men would send their families over, and then they would join them on the weekends, come out of the city. So New Orleanians themselves who had already knew yellow fever was in their city and seeking refuge had just packed up those who were able to do so packed up and come to the coast and unbeknownst to them they had introduced yellow fever plus you had ships going back and forth between mobile new orleans and coastal cities in trade now in Vicksburg, it was the Mississippi River. Then once yellow fever appears in a community, um, those people within that community who are able flee. And since the Civil War, even though we had destruction of railroads after the Civil War in the 1870s, um, there was a rebuilding process and there was one or two main south trunk lines that went up and then one straight from Jackson over from Vicksburg to Jackson through Lake, through Newton and on over to Meridian. And then there was one on the coast. So yellow fever virus worked its way either on boats or on in people fleeing and then along the railroad tracks. And what was particularly terrible about the 1878 epidemic is that the reach far exceeded what the state had experienced before. So that towns that folks thought were safe havens proved not to be that. Yes. And the beautiful city of Holly Springs is an example of that. Oftentimes when you're reading and you're researching the 78 epidemic, what you find is that the 1853 epidemic had been the, as I call it, sort of the high water epidemic. 
And towns that had escaped the 53 epidemic really believed for whatever reason there were some towns that had springs and they thought the water of the springs were medicinal. Holly Springs happened to think because it has a higher elevation that it was safe. And Holly Springs very generously opened its gates and said, if you want to come to a healthy place, we're fever free. Come on in. And when, of course, that happened, Holly Springs was just devastated with yellow fever um, because viremic individuals, not knowing they're carrying it, come in. The mosquitoes are there. It's July, August, September, and uh, it spread along that way. The death rate was terrific for yellow fever. The state of Mississippi had almost a 26% death rate. That's almost unimaginable. So entire families really could just be decimated by yes. yellow fever. And in 1878, they were in towns like Holly Springs, but also Grenada, Canton, and uh, Meridian. other cities yes. the state. It was it was terrible. There are some there's some very very poignant family stories associated with yellow fever. Um, let's go to Holly Springs. There was an African American family, the Wells family. Upon freedom, that husband and wife who had several children, Jim Wells, who had several children, um, they married. He became very active in looking at land ownership for um, newly freed people, political rights to vote. And really, I think I like to think of him as a very early civil rights hero in this area of this of Holly Springs. And people in the community apparently looked up to him. And, you know, his children had been educated. His older daughter, Ida. Uh, had been educated, and there was extended family around. When the 1878 epidemic came along, she was 16 years old. As a 16-year-old, not understanding how you're going to get the disease, is she going to get the disease? How are you going to treat the disease effectively? She did nurse her mother and father, who later died, and upon their death, take her siblings and raise them. Now, we know her as Ida B. Wells, and I cannot help but think that for a young woman to have gone through that crushing pain of losing both parents, and you can find their names listed in two different accounts, plus you can go to Holly Springs and go to the cemetery or the museum, but I have two different accounts that were kept by um, statisticians putting down who died, how many cases and things, and it lists, um, you know, Jim and then wife. Well, that's the pa- that's her mm-hmm. parents. That is when we usually pick up with Ida B. Wells' story when she moves to Memphis. But there was so much backstory there that I think a lot of that strength and the civic engagement and the taking care of... I cannot help but believe that some of that was forged right there in Holly Springs and that the 1878 epidemic helped helped her gain some of that strength that she she exhibited later in life. But that's that's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't argue. 
Efforts to improve public health in Mississippi were documented throughout the 20th century and collected by the Mississippi Department of Archives and History. On the MDAH website, you can find digitized historical photographs of home visits by nurses in rural parts of the state, Red Cross training classes from the 1940s, and polio vaccine trials with elementary students in 1954. Go to mdah.ms.gov and click on Collections to start your exploration of Mississippi history from home. And when you're in Jackson, visit the award-winning Museum of Mississippi History and Mississippi Civil Rights Museum. So despite the fact that there was no real understanding of how to effectively combat the disease, cities and municipalities still organized and took some actions against it. Could you tell us? So when the Mississippi State Board of Health was created in 1877, that same um, legislation also allowed for counties to create boards of health. And again, it's like your physician. Your physician at that point was who happened to be in the area where you lived. So the, the, the help you were going to receive from your county board of health just happened to be which county you lived in. Some counties were better than other counties. Uh, one of the most effective things they had, and really one of the only tools they had to combat yellow fever was quarantines. So if you had a strong county board of health that had created a quarantine around just a major municipality or maybe the county seat, you know, you had something. But that didn't often occur. Oftentimes you found citizens within small towns and locales taking it upon themselves, this self-help attitude and oftentimes you would have town leaders who were usually the white, wealthier men who would often lead this, this charge because they felt it was their patriarchal duty to help those. So shotgun quarantines would be established and the problem with quarantines, no one in, no one out, which meant that oftentimes supplies became very low and, you know, you were isolated from family members, and there were instances of people trying to get two families or bring families in. So even that was iffy at best. But I will say that the city of Natchez had a very strong shotgun quarantine. Now, Natchez suffered terribly in 1853, but in 1878, Natchez had few cases. Can we say it was because of a strict quarantine? I'd like to think. By 1878, there was a robust national media, um, or, or at least means to follow news stories across the, the nation. What were some of the um, reactions of folks outside Mississippi to the epidemic? There is a wonderful, wonderful outpouring, an amazing outpouring of not just monetary relief, but spiritual relief. There was days of prayer set aside across the nation for the stricken South. There were Sunday schools collecting pennies across from, I've got instances in Davenport, Iowa, all the way to France. 
there was monies and provisional aid that was sent to the South. And it was a very, very tremendous outpouring that amounted to many hundreds of thousands of dollars that came in. And then, of course, how that was going to be distributed was also then an issue, too. So you had churches coming to the aids of churches. You had Catholic charities. You had Jewish charities set up. You had Presbyterians, Episcopalians. You had civic organizations. You had Masons. You had all kinds of organizations that were created, and they were helping their own nationally. So those collections, things would have occurred maybe in Ohio and would have made their way down to the Presbyterians from the Presbyterians in Ohio. So it just, there was across the board religious, there was across the board civic, and across the board government. The U.S. government did send in um, a relief ship from everything from coffins to ice to lemons. So it, it went. But again... The thing that we have to look at is, so who got that? The aid came in, but the distribution of the aid absolutely did not reach the African-American community. It did not reach other marginalized communities. Those who got the aid were those who had been more a part of that ascendancy of the Democratic Party when it came back and those others. Um, African-Americans in Vicksburg and the, the organization also existed in New Orleans just created the Peabody Association as a self-help. When the chambers, the U.S. ship arrived and there's all of these provisions on board, but yet the white patriarchal group is saying, I'm sorry, you're not going to be able to partake of that, then you had to help yourself. And this is exactly what that did. So the aid was absolutely tremendous. The distribution of the aid was abysmal. The disease rages across the state throughout the late summer and the fall and finally draws to a close as the conditions no longer become favorable for the mosquito. What do the what do the death rates, what do the numbers look like for Mississippi from the yellow fever epidemic of 1878? The numbers for Mississippi, and I'm just going to round up, and numbers vary depending on source. And this is another, I think, sad result of the epidemic in the fact that we will never know. Several reasons for that. People were afraid of yellow fever and oftentimes buried those of family members who died secretly. And we'll never have that. You also had marginalized groups that were, I can't even say underrepresented, they weren't represented. And we won't know those numbers. We won't truly know the numbers of, and if we think about it, we had a large population of Native Americans. We won't know those numbers. So that that part of the history story is not there. But the numbers that we do have, um, um, the Masons J, under J.L. Power um, really reached out and asked for numbers from all of the local communities and fellow Masons. Wirt Johnson reached out through the Mississippi State Board of Health, give me numbers of cases, give me numbers of deaths. So between those two, we've got a pretty good idea 
that we had about 14,000 cases, and let's say um, 25% of that, we had upwards to about 4 or 5%, 5,000 died. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which is terrific. And it's terrific in the fact that you are already stretching a state that has been stretched to the max prior to the onset of the disease, politically, socially, and economically. And then you bring this in, and literally in some locales, um, there were not enough coffins. There was not enough people to dig the graves. There was not enough um, you know, people to go collect the dead. So you had this occurring. So it it really was, you know, no epidemic is ever a good time. But Mississippi was in such a state in 1878 that this was just like a hammer coming down on it. By the dawn of the 20th century, mosquitoes had been identified as the primary vector for yellow fever, and the disease really no longer posed a major threat. What were some of the lasting effects of the 1878 yellow fever epidemic, both for Mississippi and the country? I believe that the 1878 yellow fever epidemic entrenched racial problems. I think that in the rise of the Democratic Party, and that was in 77, this epidemic comes in 78, the new constitution was 1890. I think that by denying people basic health opportunities, it entrenched the power over African-Americans and showed African-Americans that it doesn't matter that the government is coming or not. I say whether you get the provisions. I think that is a horrible ramification of the disease. The other thing is that the Mississippi State Board of Health and a National Yellow Fever Commission was created, um, continuing to look at quarantine. So you had an increasing um, acceptance of quarantine stations, more quarantine stations, recognition of, um, you know, how much ships had to weigh out of the harbor if they were coming from certain areas. Um, so that that recognition, I think, took place. Medically, we don't have any improvements that we can speak of medically, not until the mosquito vector was recognized and uh, that was established. Could Mississippi begin dealing then with how to how to deal with yellow fever? And, you know, when it was first recognized, this is when screens began putting um, slicking ponds, bringing in certain kinds of minnows to eat mosquito larvae, fumigation and things. But it's not until World War II, as a result of U.S. forces being stationed in yellow fever areas, that we're actually going to have a vaccination. So um, there's there's a lot of... I think negative results of the yellow fever epidemic. Certainly the the human loss is horrific and just profoundly sad that people died and didn't know why. It it's just and families lost entire members. You know, it just um, you know, uh we can just the story of Ida B. Wells and what she had to pick up. And that's one story. So it it really is a um a very sad part of Mississippi's history. But then there is some wonderful glimmers of people taking care of people. So it's it's the viewpoint, I think. 
The book is Plague Among the Magnolias, the 1878 Yellow Fever Epidemic in Mississippi. Thank you, Deanne Stevens, for being with us today. Thank you so much, Chris. Speaking of Mississippi is a joint production of the Mississippi Department of Archives and History and the Community Foundation for Mississippi. On other episodes this season, we'll talk about the desegregation of the capital city's swimming pools, the Union Veterans Fraternal Organization, the Grand Army of the Republic in Mississippi, and the 1970 Jackson State shootings. If you'd like to learn more about the yellow fever epidemic, you can find a video of Deanne Stevens discussing the topic as part of the History is Lunch series on the Mississippi Department of Archives and History YouTube channel, Facebook page, and website. This season, our opening music comes from a 1942 recording by Sid Hempel, the most storied black musician in the Mississippi Hills in the early 20th century. Our closing music was recorded in 1939 by Tishomingo County fiddler John Hatcher and included on the 1985 Mississippi Department of Archives and History release, Great Big Yam Potatoes. I'm Chris Goodwin. Thank you for listening to Speaking of Mississippi.